Yes, book by book. We're thrilled to have you joining us here in Ealing, part of London, England. And I'm Richard Bewes, joined here by my friends who are sharing in the book by book study of the book of the prophet Isaiah. And uh, that's Paul Blackham here, and also our special guest, who's Alec Matia. And as we come to this, we're taking the, now the eighth in our series of studies on Isaiah. Open your Bible if you've got one with you. That could be useful, please. And then we shall be looking at chapters 49 to 53 as we think about the glory of the cross. That is our theme today. Let me read from Isaiah 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Well, as we come to this, our section includes this. Our section today altogether includes the second, third, and fourth servant songs, as they're called. So chapter 49 first. You know, friends, Isaiah was always reminding Israel of the Gentile nations of the whole world. How do chapter 49, verses 6 to 7, or even 20, verse 22, mm. even the end of verse 26, if you've got your Bibles there open, yeah. how do they describe Christ's mission in this second song of the yeah. servant? Paul, what do you think? Well, I, I love the fact that it's just that sense of get your vision right up and out. Because there's that danger always of just oh, like a ghetto mentality of just saying, oh, it's just for us. And even now people get like that and closed in. And it's just great to say, we're, oh, you know, for this servant, Christ... He he needs a mission no smaller than the whole world. Anything smaller than that isn't big enough for him. Like, he's the one, you know, everything was created through him. The whole universe is created through him. You can't restrict his vision down to just these people who live here. He's got a vision for the whole world, the ends of the earth. It's like uh, the furthest point away. And then I love it where it's like kings will rise up and princes. So it's like they they might look out of the world and see all these pagan kings and rulers. And he's like, those are the exact sort of people who are going to be worshipping. And it's like, wow, it's an incredible vision. And then right at the end, all mankind will know, I, the Lord, am your saviour, your redeemer the mighty one of Jacob, which takes us back to that theme that we've thought about, that the salvation for the world is, comes out of the salvation of Israel. Oh, it's great. Christ, the servant, the saviour of the whole lot. whole world. I think it's so important to see connections. By the end of 48, Isaiah has reached this point, there is no peace to the wicked. And in particular there, he's referring to the professing people of God, the then Israel. Mm. Mm. They're coming back from Babylon, but he's warning them them that a change of address is not a change of heart. And they're coming back without peace with God. And onto that stage, the servant steps with a a revised job specification. He's going to bring Jacob back to God, and he's going to bring the whole world to God. Mm. So he, it picks up on 42 
with his worldwide mission, but it now revises it in terms of what Isaiah has discovered, mm. the wickedness of Israel, who needs to be saved. Absolutely, mm. the canvas is huge. It is, yeah. Chapter, I mean, as you move on, you see, you're looking at chapter down into 50. Yeah. Uh, that begins by God's answer to his people's despair. Yeah. And I suppose that we could say that in this, the third of the seven songs, how does the seventh ordeal, look at verses six to seven particularly, how does his ordeal meet such despair? Uh, by contrast, that the, in context, this servant song is a total contrast to what's gone before. Israel is despondent, refuses to rest on the promises, Doubtless said, they're marvellous, but not for me. You know that yes. typical depressive state? Yes. Mm -hmm. And the servant comes in absolutely buoyant. <laughs> this servant song is based around four great statements about the Lord God. You see verse 4? The Lord God has given. Verse 5, the Lord God has opened. Verse 7, the Lord God will help. Verse 9, the Lord God will help. Uh, this total confidence in God. Uh, and... and and then at the end of the servant song, in verses 10 and 11, the little tailpiece there, uh, Isaiah says, now, if you want to be one who fears God, then listen to the voice of the servant. He's your example. So uh, despondency is counteracted, first of all, by the example of the servant, mm. and then by setting our feet in his way to follow him. Mm. That's so heartening. It's yeah. very encouraging. And actually, I mean, we, I'd like to stay there, but I think we should move on to chapter 51, because there again, it movingly describes God's work of salvation to Israel and the world. And as I look at verse 22, Paul, how does this reference to the cup of God's wrath mm. relate to Christ? Well, there's this cup of his wrath, and it's all that, the, his anger, his judgment against all that, the world has done wrong, and, and Jerusalem's drunk it and can't drink, drink it. It's, you, you know, he's like, oh, he, who can, can comfort you? Who can console you? It's an unbearable thing to bear, this cup of God's wrath. Uh, it's too much. It's too, uh, and then it's like he, he says in verse 22, I've taken it out of your hand. So it's as if Jerusalem's like, we can't drink this. And he's like, I know. And he takes it out of their hand and says, no. You know, the, the wicked, they will have to drink this. But I love the fact that when you go over to Matthew 26 and verse 39, this cup of wrath is Christ. It's presented to Christ himself. And of course, he's like, is it, is it possible for it to be taken out of my hand? Like in Isaiah, he takes it out of the hands of Jerusalem and his people. And Christ, is it possible for it to be taken out? And is it, but not my will, your will. And it is, of course, it isn't taken out of his hands. And he does, in fact, drink it and drain it to the dregs. He takes that wrath, that punishment of God on himself mm. so that his people don't need to drink it. Oh, I just love that. Mm. It's too much for us to drink but he'll drink it for us and bear it for us. Wow. Oh, I'd like to, I'd like to stop the study right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. good place to stop. And yet, we should, let's do a bit more. Because, I mean, if we look back actually to the beginning of that chapter, 51, uh, Alec, you wrote a book entitled after verse 1 and 2, Look to the Rock. That's what you call the book. Mm. What does Isaiah mean by this strange command? Well, here... Look to where you started. 
Abraham. Uh, it's it's a word of an, uh, a word of encouragement arising out of examples from the past. Mm. Uh, Abraham, the the sole figure in the world, the man who knew God, and look what became of him. The Lord made him a great nation and delivered him, and when he was threatened by four kings, gave him victory. They can look back to all that and say, that's what God is like. The examples of the past are a revelation of God, which is why in, in the Hebrew Bible, the books of history are called prophets, because examples from the past are declarations about God. That's a good explanation. Yeah. And, uh, and so Isaiah says, have a look back to Abraham and be encouraged because you're a tiny nation. You're, you're going to be in the grip of the superpower of the world. But what does that mean to the Lord? He can rescue you. Mm -hmm. He can deal with all that. It's a grand statement. Look yeah. to the rock mm. yeah, from which you were hewn, as it puts in the old version. And actually, as you go on looking at Isaiah 52, is a reminder here of how the Lord redeems his people mm. from, well, from the pagan nations, actually. Mm. Yeah. What's the challenge of verse, do you see it there, Paul, verse 11? Have a look at it. Well, it, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out from it. Well, because, it, yeah, he's, his vision is for all these nations of the world, but he saves his people out of out of those nations. So it's that, in other words, you know, yeah, people will be saved from all these, all the nations of the world, from all the pagan nations, but in being saved, they are to leave behind all that pagan stuff and worshipping false gods and unbelief and ignorance, to leave all that behind. And so the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, he quotes it when he's challenging the Corinthians who are saints in a pagan nation who are saved out and he says listen you guys you can't keep all that pagan ignorance and materialism and unbelief and worship of money and human wisdom leave all that behind now because you've been saved out of that to christ to the living god so that's the challenge and it's true for the church always and but now most of the church is in all these pagan nations of the world but always there's the call to pull to pull us back into that paganism and we say no no we're leaving that behind we're coming out from that the we're call, in the call to separation the call to separation we're in but we're not of mm. and as you say it's gone to all the nations of the world yeah. this, this the family of god is is drawn from all and i which is why i love uh verse 10 uh and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation oh, yeah, of our God. Yeah. Then Luke picks that up in Luke chapter 3, verse 6. And it's really the theme of the whole of Luke, mm. the universality mm. of what Christ is doing uh, for the world Glory. in terms of salvation. Did you notice that that command, depart, depart, is the third of three commands? Uh, and, and the whole thing is entering into something that's been prepared for you. If uh, the first one, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, is come out from under the wrath of God, come out from all that enmity you've been facing. In 52 verse 1, awake, awake, put on your beautiful garments, enter into holiness. Mm. And, and here, come out from Babylon, come out from under the heel of the oppressor. Mm. And you ask, how do you do that? Well, Isaiah's answer is, 
The servant has done it all for you, and you must enter into what he has achieved. Magnificent. It is. Magnificent. And it's just where we are. That the whole battle of the Christian life is to enter into what Christ has done for us. Full, full salvation is ours already, but the battle is to enter into it. Brilliant. Well, let's listen to Alec going on a bit. I'd like to <laughs> hear you a bit yeah. more. I mean, actually, see, look at hey, Isaiah 53. Yeah. Uh, chapter 52, first of all, verse 13, right through 53, forms the fourth great servant song. Yeah. Actually, it became personal to me. That night I accepted Jesus Christ when I was a teenager years ago. Um, what should this chapter mean to us all, Alec? <laughs> well, just, just about that. <laughs> but... Uh, you know how boring I can be about the way things hang together, connections. And the servant comes before us here in 53.1 as the arm of the Lord. Now, in order to understand that, you've got to go back to 51.9, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. In 51.9, the arm of the Lord is the Lord himself who came down to Egypt to save his people. Right? I love that. That's right. The arm of the Lord is, is the Lord himself. I love that. And, and here, in, and then in 52.10, the Lord has made bare his holy arm. What does that mean? Well, it means he's rolled up his sleeves to take action. Mm. Now, you don't roll up your sleeves if somebody else is going to do a job. <laughs> so, so again, the, the, the arm of the Lord is the Lord himself coming to take action and there to save all the ends of the earth. Now you come to 53 verse 1, look at this. This unexpected being is the arm of the Lord. Who is he then? He's the Lord himself come to save. And really, arm of the Lord in 53 verse 1 should have a capital letter, uppercase arm. The Lord himself come to save. And that, that is the setting of the whole of 53. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, I like that. Keep so going. how does he, yeah, how does he, what does he do when he comes? Well, the, you, we come to the great, great truth of salvation by substitution. It lies at the heart of, the heart, very heart of this passage. The heart of the final servant song is verses four to six. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Bearing and carrying go back to the scapegoat in Le Leviticus 16. The high priest put on the goat the, all the sins, iniquities and transgressions of Israel and the goat carried them away. Salvation by substitution. And it says here, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. And you ask the question, what does that word for mean? Because that's the key word. <clears throat> and in the Hebrew, it's quite precise. He was wounded because of our transgressions. It's an effect arising out of a cause. The cause is our transgressions. The effect is his bruising. Direct, direct substitution of the servant to receive what we should have received. Mm. Salvation by substitution. And in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. That's a perfectly good translation. But in Hebrew, it's the second verb there, afflicted, is what's called a tolerative. He allowed himself to be afflicted. For the first time, the substitute was voluntary. 
All the animal substitutes could only be pictures because they weren't yes, voluntary. Yes, yes. And they left our wills out of the reckoning. They couldn't represent us mm -hmm. of the will. But the principle is there. The principle is there, but the servant is the perfect substitute. Mm -hmm. It took Isaiah to see that only, only a person can substitute for people. Mm -hmm. He allowed himself to be afflicted. And again in verse, he was numbered with the transgressors is another tolerative Verse 12, he let himself be numbered. It was his voluntary decision to stand in our place. And oh. that's the cross. Really, that's what, the, really, really, that's what the, the whole chapter is about. Maybe perhaps mention another little bit in verse 12, verse 11, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Now, I can tell you that there's a little turn of phrase there in Hebrew that occurs nowhere else in the Old Testament. Tell us. And it can only mean provide righteousness for. Wow. So there is the imputed righteousness of Christ in the Old Testament. My verse was, we all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him and the iniquity of us. Terrific emphasis on the Lord yes. in the Hebrew. That's right. And the Lord, Yahweh himself. In fact, as we close off our study now, I'm reminded of what George Whitfield once said 250 years ago. He was a mighty preacher. And preaching about Christ, he once said this, The Jews, when Christ shed a tear at poor Lazarus's funeral, said, Behold, how he loved him. How much more justly may we cry out, Behold how he loved us when he shed not only a tear, but his most precious blood for us. You may say to yourself, God can't love me, he must hate me. No, the cross, the blood of Christ shed for you, says he loves you. Let's believe that and hold on to it and respond to it today.